Hello, this is Dr. Shobana Rajan. I'm a staff anesthesiologist at the Cleveland Clinic, Ohio. On behalf of the Education Committee of the SNAC, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Jeffrey Pasternak to the first episode of Rendezvous with the Expert. Dr. Pasternak is an Associate Professor of Anesthesiology and the Chair of the Division of Neurosurgical Anesthesiology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He is also the Vice President for Education and Scientific Affairs at SNAC. He will be our expert today and give us a brief overview of anesthesia for posterior fossa surgery. So welcome, Dr. Pasternak. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. So we'll start off with the first question. What are some of the indications and surgical advantages of sitting craniotomy? Any posterior fossa procedure can be performed essentially in the sitting position. Tumor resections are probably the most common, but decompression of carry malformations and even treatment of some vascular disorders can be performed in the sitting position. Likewise, cervical spine decompression and cervical muscle denervation for torticollis can also be performed in sitting. The resection of a pineal tumor is a great indication for sitting position because gravity actually enhances cerebellar retraction downwards and improves access to the pineal region. And lastly, any procedure where the access to the apex of the head, such as implantation of deep brain stimulator leads, can also be performed in the sitting position. The sitting position has multiple advantages over horizontal positions. First of all, provides improved surgical access, not only due to increased cerebrospinal fluid drainage, but probably more importantly, increased venous drainage, leading to less uh, brain blood volume. This also provides an anatomically correct view for the surgeon, as the surgeon can operate face on instead of from uh, the side view. Cerebellar retraction is optimized, and the sitting position is an excellent alternative to horizontal positions for patients with restrictive pulmonary physiology or patients who are obese. And lastly, access to the airway and access to the arms for the anesthesiologist is optimized. Thanks so much. What are the contraindications to sitting craniotomy? How would you screen your patients to rule out these conditions? Well, contraindications include the presence of a patent foramen ovale or any other potential source of a right-to-left shunt. Also, patients with a working ventriculoatrial shunt, if there's risk for intraventricular air entrainment, uh, should also not be performed in the sitting position. Patients with severe orthostatic hypotension may not tolerate the sitting position very well, and patients with musculoskeletal or other issues that may limit positioning, such as patients with severe decubitus ulcers, might better tolerate a horizontal position. In terms of screening, most of the relative contraindications can be obtained from a history and physical examination. For those for screening for intracardiac shunts, I would suggest reviewing the medical record to see if there's evidence of a shunt documented previously. Review any prior echocardiograms. At Mayo Clinic, we generally do not obtain a pre-anesthetic echocardiogram. Instead, we usually place a transesophageal echocardiogram uh, probe following induction of anesthesia and before surgery starts. And if a PFO or other source of an intracardiac shunt is identified, then we usually change plans and perform the procedure in a horizontal position. Where would we zero the arterial line transducer? 
in this case? Is it different from the standard zeroing at the heart level in other cases? That's an excellent question and a subject of great controversy right now. One opinion is that cerebral perfusion depends on arterial blood pressure generating a force that pushes blood into the brain. So according to Pascal's principle, this force is decreased at the level of the circle of Willis compared to that found at the aortic root in patients sitting. Therefore, pressure should be corrected for hydrostatic gradient. However, others believe that um, in a closed vascular circuit, a siphon physiology governs cerebral blood flow. Cerebral perfusion is maintained in awake patients going from supine to sitting to standing position. Therefore, cerebral perfusion pressure doesn't necessarily need to be corrected for a hydrostatic gradient. My opinion, we really don't have a complete understanding of the factors that govern cerebral blood flow and cerebral perfusion pressures in healthy humans, let alone those with intracranial pathology, an open cranial vault, and those having surgery that can result in breach of the closed circulatory system. Given these unknowns, I place the transducer at the level of the tragus. This will result in lower pressures recorded with the arterial transducer and a more aggressive avoidance of cerebral hypoperfusion if cerebral perfusion is dependent on arterial pressure in the sitting position. Would you routinely place a central venous catheter? And if so, would you use the multi-orifice air aspiration catheter? Could you tell us something about the placement of the catheter tip and its use? Sure. At Mayo Clinic, we routinely do not use a central catheter for all sitting cases. Signs of venous air embolism uh, are generally due to both the rate and the volume of air entrainment. In those with a mild venous air embolism, pulmonary, pulmonary vasoconstriction may not be significant enough to result in hemodynamic changes, and the lungs are generally able to clear air. A CVP catheter will really only theoretically be useful in the setting of a large venous air embolism where the volume of air in the right side of the heart and in the pulmonary arterial circulation impede forward flow. Therefore, we place a CVP catheter in patients at risk for a large venous air embolism, such as those having intracranial procedures. Also, we do place them in patients having cervical denervation for torticollis because we have experienced some episodes of large venous air emboli during these cases. At the last snack meeting, our group presented a poster that described the utility of central venous catheters in patients with venous air emboli. Even in those with hemodynamically significant venous air emboli, the volume of air that was aspirated from the catheter was minimal and likely not enough to modulate outcome. We do use a multi-orifice catheter placed via an antecubital vein, and if we're unable to place that, we would resort to a standard CVP placed via the subclavian route. In terms of positioning uh, the catheter tip, that's a great question. Data from many years ago in animal models suggests that during a venous air embolism, the air sort of hangs up at the junction of the superior vena cava and the right atrium. However, I would imagine that in humans in the sitting position, this is probably unlikely. Despite this, we still place the catheter at this location. A catheter located too far, such as such that the tip is in the heart can predispose to arrhythmias. 
When the catheter tip is not in far enough and located in the venous system, first of all, its location is not easy to locate and to, to quantify with a transesophageal echo. It's very easy, though, to see the, the catheter tip when it's located at the SVCRA junction. However, I also question the utility of a catheter that's too proximally located within the uh, venous system as air may be entrained by both brachial cephalic veins and therefore you want to be able to withdraw blood that's uh, um, supplied by both brachial cephalic veins. What are the techniques used to detect air embolism in these cases? Would you routinely use a transesophageal echo probe for monitoring for air? Well, TEE and procordial Doppler are probably the most sensitive methods to detect air entrainment. Procordial Doppler has the advantage of being non-invasive and it allows the clinician to be warned of air entrainment by a change in the sound of the signal. Therefore, the clinician can put their attention to other tasks. However, the downside of Doppler is that it's really a qualitative monitor for air. A large venous air embolism and a small venous air embolism may actually sound the same. TEE, however, provides a quantitative assessment of air. However, it's an invasive monitor it's contraindicated in certain circumstances, such as patients who have had esophageal surgery or those with esophageal varices. It requires the clinician to pay visual attention. Therefore, they really can't attend to other tasks. And lastly, it cannot be used continuously as the temperature of the probe increases and the device shuts off when the temperature reaches a pre-specified value. We generally use a TEE unless it's contraindicated and a procordial Doppler for all sitting neurosurgical procedures performed with general anesthesia. For patients having deep brain stimulator lead implantation, we use a precordial Doppler only. Other techniques for detecting air include a decrease in end-expired carbon dioxide and an increase in end-expired nitrogen. However, this latter technique is not really available as um, mass spectroscopy is uh, not routinely used for uh, gas analysis as it's been replaced by infrared-based techniques. What are the other position-related complications and risks? Well, we've already talked about venous air embolism. Uh, paradoxical air embolism would be a risk if there was air uh, that made it to the left side of the heart. That would put the patient at risk for uh, stroke, myocardial ischemia, as well as renal infarcts. Um, brachial plexus stretch can occur in the sitting position if the arms aren't adequately supported. Some patients can have pretty significant hypotension, usually related to a decrease in cardiac preload. There's pressure on the ischial tuberosities um, that can be made worse if the patient's bed is not, a patient's back is not resting against the bed while in the sitting position. And in patients with excessive neck flexion and the presence of an endotracheal tube and the presence of a transesophageal echo probe, this increases risk for tongue swelling. And lastly, um, for intracranial procedures performed in the sitting position, the cerebrospinal fluid will drain out of the, uh, the durotomy site and can lead to a significant pneumocephalus. In addition, there are other monitoring-related complications, such as an injury related to the placement of a uh, TEE probe or common uh, complications related to the placement of uh, central venous lines. Dr. Pasternak, would you extubate these patients like any other craniotomy at the end of the case? As long as they meet typical extubation criteria, then yes, I would. 
However, I would be specifically concerned in patients at risk for new neurologic injuries, especially those with lower cranial nerve injuries, as they may not be able to protect their airway. Therefore, I would be um, sure that I tested for a gag reflex before I extubated a patient who had an intracranial procedure performed in the sitting position. In a patient with a swollen tongue, I would wait to extubate until the tongue swelling went down. And in a patient who ended up with a significant venous air embolism who was hemodynamically unstable during the procedure, I would make sure that the patient was hemodynamically stable before I removed the endotracheal tube. Thank you so much for your expert comments on this topic, and thank you for your time. Oh, it was my pleasure.